Let me invite your attention to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. I want to let you know that I wish it were greater in my life, and I aspire to this, but I'm not hesitant to tell you that I love the Lord Jesus. I trust Him, and I want to know Him. I want to follow Him, and I want to share Him. I feel much like Dr. Robert Naylor, who used to be president at Southwestern Seminary many years ago. I got to do the last interview with Dr. Naylor, by the way, before he passed away. And uh, had a marvelous time fellowshipping with him as he was helping me with a project. But he was preaching at a college, a collegiate meeting at Falls Creek in uh, Oklahoma. And a large number of college students had gathered there. And the theme of the week was, who do you say Christ is? And he said, now each evening I've been asking you the question, who do you say that Christ is? He said, tonight I want to tell you what I think of Jesus. He said, I just can't wait to walk the next mile with him. And that's how I feel about the Lord Jesus. I want the entire region to feel that way about Jesus. And it's right, and it's appropriate, and it's wrong if it doesn't happen. Everyone should be excited about walking the next mile with Jesus. I hope to inspire that today. And, uh, of course, it's going to take your help in prayer, and it's going to take the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. But that kind of enthusiasm for Jesus is what I believe is at the heart of a New Testament church. There has been a trend the last number of years, even among Christians in Bible-believing churches, to talk more about God than Jesus. That is really not a positive move. I'm afraid that some of that is capitulation to the politically correct notions of our era. I need to make it unequivocal and clear But God the Father wants to be known in Jesus. And when the Father has the opportunity to identify and to elevate a member of the Trinity, and when the Holy Spirit has the opportunity to identify and elevate a member of the Trinity, the Spirit and the Father are in one and in unison. The Father and Spirit exalt Jesus. The Father and the Spirit and the entire Trinity is entirely Christocentric, focused on Jesus. All of heaven is focused on Jesus. Every angel is focused on Jesus. Every cherubim is focused on Jesus. Every seraphim is focused on Jesus. Every Old Testament saint is focused on Jesus. Every New Testament saint that has departed is focused on Jesus. They lift Him up. And that's what God expects from His church. He expects that from the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We lift up Jesus. John had that same sentiment in heart. He said in verse number 30, This is He of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. 
Some translations read, He ranks higher than me, or He is elevated above me, because He came before me. Now, John was six months older than Jesus. And yet he says, Jesus came before me, and he's entirely correct. Because Jesus Christ did not begin in Bethlehem. Jesus Christ is as much God as the Father and the Spirit. Jesus Christ had no beginning. R.G. Lee used to say that when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he was the same age as his father and older than his mother. Jesus Christ is God. And so in verse number 30, he said, Jesus is preferred before me. In verse 15, he got this started and said, He who comes after me is preferred before me. And then in verse number 27, It is he coming after me is preferred before me. John couldn't help himself, and I hope you can't either. We want to be the kind of people that prefer Jesus before ourselves. And I have to say to you that we are to prefer His view of Himself more than our own. We have to prefer, we should prefer and can prefer His view of salvation before our own. We can prefer His view of life and eternity, all the significant and insignificant issues in life and the next life before our own. And quite frankly, Jesus has the credibility He calls for the whole earth to prefer Him before anyone or anything else. We say in Texas that there are some people who make statements and can't back them up. And and when we find someone like that, they are all hat and no cattle. They look and sound like they do, but they don't. Don't know a thing about raising cattle. Ladies and gentlemen, no one could ever say that about Jesus. Jesus comes through all the way. He is worthy and deserving now of every one of us preferring Him before anyone or anything else, including ourselves. He is preferred. The Father prefers Him. The Spirit prefers Him. The saints and angels prefer Him. Oh, let us rush and run to join them in that happy chorus and prefer Him above all and everything else. Why? Well, in this text, beginning in verse 29, we find Jesus meeting His disciples for the first time. Later, He will call them to ministry. But here, He unveils Himself with some help from John the Baptist and others through a series of titles. There are a number of titles in this text that you can miss if you cover over it too quickly. But they really are the emphasis of the text. And it's because of the titles of Christ and the nature that substantiates them and proves them that we should prefer Jesus above all else. And the first title is this, Lamb of God. Chapter 1, verse 29, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, a lot of folks want to bring to God their own offering, their own virtue, which they have to exaggerate, their own religious works or moral works, which they tend to exaggerate rather naively. And 
in, in, in evangelism and in witnessing, I have come to the sad conclusion that the vast majority of the world is naively self-righteous and lives under a false sense of security in their relationship with God because they're bringing to God an offering that is of their own making and their own invention. In the Old Testament, God temporarily expected that from the Israelites, yet in a sense He didn't. He wanted them to bring the best lamb from their flock, the best offering from their flocks. And on the Day of Atonement, they would bring as a nation this one to cover the sins of the nation. But it was the best of their flock, and they would bring it. And that was a temporary sign of what Jesus would do on the cross. The priest would sacrifice the lamb, spill its blood upon the altar, and for a year, the sins of the nation were atoned for or covered. John looks when Jesus approaches him and points to the crown like we all should and points at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So instead of us bringing in this day our own offering to God in a temporary fashion, God the Father brings His own offering for our sins. The Lord Jesus Christ, He is not the Lamb of David. He's not the Lamb of Bob. He's not the Lamb of Bud. He's not the Lamb of John. He is the Lamb, the offering of God for the sins of the world. You don't have to take your own measly, exaggerated offering before God, that which is deteriorating, that which really is not worthy of the presence of God. That's not necessary. God has offered you His own offering in Jesus Christ. And He doesn't cover your sin. Oh no. He doesn't cover it all. Beloved, what He does is that He actually takes it away and removes it and eliminates it from the presence of God. That's the wonderful thing about coming to Christ. And that's when once you're saved, you're always saved because sin, past, present, and future is completely eliminated before God. The truth is, Revelation, after the book of John, talks more about Jesus as the Lamb than anyone else. And there, Jesus takes away sin from the entire existence of the universe. One day, He'll return and completely eliminate its presence. And this day, He eliminates the penalty and the power of sin. He takes it away. And in the future, He will eliminate the very presence of sin. May I say to you, there is no other religious leader, past, present, or future, who is ever making that claim but Jesus. He is in a category above himself. He's to be preferred above all else. He is the Lamb of God. But there's a second title. He is the Spirit-empowered one. In the Old Testament, the Spirit came upon prophets and priests and kings. And so when the Spirit comes upon someone in the New Testament, that is a highly significant event. God puts them into service. Verse 32, John bore witness saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and He remained upon Him. I did not know Him, but He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on Him, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, and I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Jesus Christ was anointed like a prophet, priest, and king by the Holy Spirit. And so the works He performed were works of great power. And beloved, I've got to say to you, there's no exaggeration in Him. 
There is no evidence from the first century that anyone denied the works and the miracles of Christ. Even the enemies of Jesus admitted his miracles and works in biblical and extra-biblical sources. They said they were from the devil, which doesn't make any sense. The devil is not an adequate explanation for healing joy to God, restoration. Jesus did not advance the work of Satan with his works. He toppled it, is what he did. And so, even his enemies, however, give us a great answer to those who doubt the miracles and authenticity of Christ. Even they admit that he performed miracles of power and great miracles. In fact, when everyone else was running from the lepers, Jesus accepted them and healed them reached out his hand and touched them first, then healed the leprosy. He didn't heal the leprosy first, then touched them. A woman that was hemorrhaging and was a great financial and personal frustration to many, had been bleeding for 12 years and hemorrhaging for 12 years. Jesus reached out and touched her. You weren't supposed to do that if you were a man, but we're talking about God here. He can do anything. That kind of thing does not pose a healthy health risk to him. When Jesus attended funerals, they never buried the corpse. He raised him from the dead. In fact, he arrived usually before the funeral uh, was, uh, uh, in, in, had, had begun. And when he didn't, he arrived four days later after Lazarus was already buried. And then he stood at that tomb without doubt or gyration or gymnastics or some of the silly things that take place in this day. Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth. One preacher said it's a good thing he said Lazarus, for if he just said come forth, every corpse in that cemetery would have come up. (laughs) Which one day they will. He's going to return to judge the living and dead, and those in the graves will hear his voice, and those who've done the righteous thing of trusting Christ will be raised to a resurrection of righteousness, and those who haven't to a resurrection of condemnation. Jesus Christ is the Spirit-empowered one. And Jesus didn't have to sweat or perspire when he did this. Not at all. Unlike Batman in the Lego movie, he got it right on the first try. (laughs) Because the Spirit was on him. There's a third title, and that is the teacher. Dr. Fish used to tell the story of the preacher who was preaching and He wasn't doing a very good job. He was trying to impress the congregation and confusing him, but he was speaking in a low voice. And after a few moments, someone from the back of the crowd stood up and said, Speak up, we can't hear you. And a man on the front row that heard him said, Sit down and give thanks. (laughs) I had one deacon that said, One night I'm going to call you, Pastor, when I have insomnia and ask you to preach so I can go to sleep. Do you know no one ever said that about Jesus in his preaching and teaching? His words are memorized and quoted today more than anyone else. He is exalted as a teacher. No one said the things that Jesus said. And it's remarkable. He said them in our own language. Lyman Sena at Yale University did a study of a translation of the Bible. And it dawned on him one day that Christianity is the only religion not recorded in the language of its founder. The New Testament is not recorded in either Aramaic or Hebrew, at least the original copies. The New Testament is recorded in what originally? 
Greek, and not classical Greek, but Koine Greek, which is common Greek. And Laman Santa went on to say that God has never had anything to say that could not be said with common language. And that God wants to be heard, and when He is heard, He wants to be understood. Beloved, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do understand. And quite frankly, I I want to chase a rabbit, but it's big, fat, and slow, and I I can get it. Um, (laughs) I, I don't want you to think and be intimidated by the book of Daniel or Revelation. Step back and look at the big picture. Don't try to define the tenth toe. Look back and look at the big picture. When you see a dragon cast out of heaven, what does that mean? That's rather obvious, isn't it? In fact, I would encourage you to sit down and read Revelation daily uh, through for a couple of days, and you'll get it. What Jesus has to say in His Word proves indeed that He is the teacher. Chapter 1, verse 38, they called Him Rabbi, which is to say, when translated, teacher. Jesus is the teacher. So what I want to say to you is Jesus is still the teacher today. You do not have to fear. You can get this life and the next life right because of Christ. And He promises to walk with anyone who repents and believes the gospel. There are many Hollywood stars that have personal trainers. And Jesus is promising something greater. He will walk with you like that and counsel you from His Word. You can get marriage right. You can get family right. You can get parenting right. You can get school right. You can get every decision you uh, are obligated to make. You can get it right because Christ teaches His people and He does so marvelously. He is also a fourth title, and that is He is the Messiah. Now, in the Old Testament, that was usually a king. Sometimes kings were called Messiah, the Hebrew word for that. That's essentially what a king is. It's translated into Greek, the word Messiah, and it becomes the word Christ. Christ, then, is not a personal name for Christ, uh, for Jesus. It happens to be a title. So when we say Christ, we are saying King. In a roundabout way, that's true when we say Lord. Jesus Christ is much like Saul, Samuel, and David. Or Saul, David, and Solomon, excuse me. Jesus Christ is the King. In verse 40, Andrew met the Lord Jesus. And it said here in verse 40, One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew. Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, which is what Andrew is always doing anytime he appears in the New Testament. He's always bringing someone to Jesus. He did that with Peter. Now, Christ had to be very careful with this term Messiah. In fact, he did not use it in the crowds. He used the term Son of Man. But with his disciples, he would clarify for them that he is the Christ because that term was filled was filled with potent political ramifications. And they completely misunderstood the political approach Jesus would take. And so he would confine that term to just his disciples and clarify it for them and would not use it in the public. They were, in fact, a tinderbox of revolution. They despised the Romans being present. They didn't like paying taxes to them. And they were wanting a revolutionary to come to run out the Romans. But God did not do that. God did not send a revolutionary to run out the Romans. God sent a Savior, a king over sin, to run out sin, which was the bigger problem. 
That was the bigger problem. Ladies and gentlemen, America's not facing anything today that a good dose of salvation couldn't fix. There will never be any peace until Jesus Christ is seated at the conference table. He has the head, the only one that that has a voice, and He's the only one that gives orders. There will never be any peace. No matter who is elected to Atlanta or Washington. Of course, I know there are some that have put on their t-shirts, Jesus Christ for president. My question is, why would he step down? (laughs) He is exalted above all. He is the king. And he doesn't come to run out a political structure by force in this age. He runs out the real problem of sin by conversion and salvation. Now, one day he'll do that. But in this age of grace, he's reaching the globe with the gospel of grace. And that underscores the problem. If the problem had been politics, he would have sent a politician. If the problem had been education, he would have sent an educator. If the problem had been poverty, he would have sent a philanthropist. But the problem was sin, so he sent a king and savior is what he did. So let's be done with these silly notions that we don't have any sin. If that's the case, then what Jesus did on the cross was a mockery and a fool's errand. Then Jesus was foolish to die for sin. That's what he said he would do. So why did Jesus die? He died for our sins because we've got them and they are real. And it's his blood atonement that takes care of them and cancels them and takes them away. He is the Messiah. There's another title. He is the fulfillment. He is the fulfillment. Verse number 45. The following day, actually in verse 43, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. The story of Jesus does not begin in the Gospels. It begins in Genesis 1. Jesus is the fulfillment. Now there are some who say that faith is a leap into the dark or a blind leap, a leap into the dark. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible nowhere defines faith that way. Faith is a wholehearted, full-throated, committed commitment to the evidence God has given to us. And Jesus being the fulfillment is one element of that evidence. Jesus is the fulfillment. God did not want us to be deceived or take blind leaps anywhere. God wanted us to have signs and criteria and measures for his Messiah. And so he said he would be born in Bethlehem of Judea. There were two Bethlehems, by the way. And so he specified the one in Judea. He would be born of the family of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. He would speak in parables. He would be crucified with criminals. He would be buried in a borrowed tomb. There's a large number of prophecies that go into Christ, and Jesus Christ fulfills them. There are also some types. The blood that was sacrificed in the garden to cover Adam and Eve with skin indicates how God would pay for sin. 
The ark is a type of salvation. That's what that is. The judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah is like the day of the Lord of judgment in Revelation. Everything God would do in Christ and later in the future, He's done in miniature and by preview first in the Old Testament. And so we have got many signs to point us in the right direction of Jesus. And you put all of these together and they point only in one direction. You follow the sign, you get off the exit ramp there. You turn left according to the sign down the road. You turn here and there, stop at this stoplight, follow the sign here. And ladies and gentlemen, when you arrive at the destination where God wants you according to His signs, you find one and one alone. His name is not Muhammad, it's not a Buddha. It doesn't happen to be one of the 300 million deities of Hinduism, what you find is Christ and Christ alone. Jesus is the fulfillment. So listen to me carefully. Faith is not a leap in the dark. It is a step into the light. And that's what God is calling you to do. Come out of your darkness today and step into His marvelous light. And Christ will be your light. So at the end of our service today, we're going to give you the opportunity to do that, to repent and believe the gospel and to get some help after the sermon, after the sermon for that very decision. You need to make it today, and we'll give you the help to do that today because Christ is the fulfillment. Christ is also the latter. Chapter 1 and uh, verse number 50 and 51, Jesus indicates that. Now, there's some background to this. Jacob was traveling, sorrowful, leaving his home and his family because of some sinful choices he made. He had deceived his father and betrayed his brother, and brokenhearted, God met him one evening in his sleep. And he saw a ladder extending from heaven down to earth, and angels ascending and descending up and down that ladder, indicating that Jacob, because of his faith, could reach God, and that God would bless him. Well, this is what happens, beginning in verse number 46. Nathaniel hears that Jesus comes from Nazareth, and Nathaniel is just really plain spoken. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, Well, come and see. And Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. In other words, he just tells you like it is. He is completely transparent. Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? Watch this. How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. That's a cryptic statement and ambiguous that uh, needs a little explanation. Jewish men often would sit under fig trees to pray and converse with the Lord. And though Jesus was a distance away from Nathanael, he meets Nathanael and said, When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. You were praying to God, and I heard you. Well, he did the only reasonable thing that I hope you'll do today. He said in verse 49, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. A radical public statement to be made is what he made publicly. Jesus is the ladder. God Himself has provided a ladder between heaven and earth. He did it for Jacob, and that prefigured Jesus, because Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. He and He alone. And then finally, Jesus is the Son of Man. 
He says in verse number 51, Most assuredly, Nathanael, I say to you hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Privately, Jesus would use the term Christ with his disciples. He didn't want to mislead the crowd, so he limited the term Messiah and Christ to his disciples. There was also another problem in Israel. Israel was a tinderbox of revolution. Rome was nervous as a cat at a dog convention about Israel. They were ready at any moment for political revolution. You could not keep the Israelites down. It bothered their conscience that there was another king besides God Almighty over their lives. So they were ready for a revolution. Rome had a hair trigger upon stamping it out. They would stamp out revolution in Israel quicker than Putin would in the Ukraine. That's what they did. And so Jesus did not want His disciples to be misunderstood or to misunderstand Him. He didn't want Rome to misunderstand Him either. And so He used an ambiguous term for kingship that the Jews would understand, but the Romans would not. And it comes from Daniel 7, where there are a variety of kingdoms, and the Ancient of Days, another term for God, gives power and authority to the Son of Man to eliminate all rival kingdoms. So when Jesus says, I am the Son of Man, what He is saying is, I am coming back in victory, in glory, in power, in might, and I will eliminate all rival kingdoms. And He'll not be subtle when He does it. It will not be gentle. It will be like a brick through a windshield. It will be like a stone or boulder against a CD player. It will be like a nuclear explosion in the middle of a city. In fact, those terms, those images are not large enough to describe what Jesus Christ will do when He eliminates as the Son of Man all sin and all the kingdoms of this earth will become the kingdoms of our Lord and His Christ. That's what Jesus Christ will do. Well, you say, I've got a moral problem with that. Well, you've never suffered, have you? Just imagine... Slaves and their joy over the Emancipation Proclamation in the 19th century, and then you've got a view. If that, if slavery, 19th century slavery, does not bother you, I question your morality. If Jesus Christ return an elimination of evil from the earth in a hurry and in a passion and in an apocalyptic event does not thrill you, what does that say about your morality? Your view of sin is not the same view of God. The world is suffering and most don't even know it. Jesus is the Son of Man and that leads me to conclude like Dick Baker did many years ago in some of his lyrics that what we need is more of Jesus. What we need is more of Jesus. What we need is more of Jesus in our lives, every day, every way. What you need is more of Jesus. What you need is more of Jesus. What you need is more of Jesus in your life every day and every way. One woman worked hard all of her life and she suffered from lack and barely made ends meet all through the decades of her life. And she'd really never traveled much further beyond her county. But her children had the opportunity near when she retired to take her to the beach 
so she could see the ocean. And she stepped out and looked at it and was overwhelmed by how vast the ocean was. And she said, thank God, finally, there's enough of something. And on the authority of the Word of God and with great hope and faith in Jesus, I'm telling you today, there is enough of something in Him. There is enough grace to cancel every sin. There is enough presence to eliminate all fears. There's enough hope to give power for today. There's enough strength to absolutely terrify hell. Jesus Christ is enough. He is enough. Thank God there is enough of something in this life. So it's high time that we give Jesus His due. It's time to trust Him. It's time to follow Him. It's time to serve Him. It's time to love Him because He is worthy. We are to prefer Him above all else. Prefer Him above all aspirations. Prefer Him above all other schedules. Prefer Him above all other goals. Prefer Him above all other words. Prefer Him above all other opinions. We are to do that because heaven certainly does. He is the crown prince of heaven and He's calling you to join with Him today. Prefer his view of himself above your own. Don't say something silly like he's merely a teacher. He is God, man, Savior, and Lord. Prefer his view of your sin more than your own. If we did not have guilt and sin, he would have never died. Humble yourself before him. Prefer his view of salvation more than your own. He paid the penalty at the cross, and there's an offering from God from heaven to cover your sin. Prepare, prefer your response, his response, to your own. Repent and believe the gospel. Repudiate all yesterdays outside of Christ and embrace him in faith alone today, not to leap into the dark, but to step in the light. You've got the opportunity to do that now. Others of you need to come and become part of Beach Haven Baptist Church by baptism, transfer of a letter, or some other means. God has put on your heart, maybe some of you, to preach the Word of God and to serve in full-time Christian ministry. God's calling some of you to rededicate your life. Prefer Jesus above all else. Would you quietly stand with me real quickly? And let's pray together. Father, thank You for the good news of the Word of God. And thank You for Your lovely Son. You say from heaven, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased, and we shout, we're pleased with Him too. And we're embarrassed that our words are not better to declare our great love for Him. I want to pray that friends today would repent and believe the gospel. I pray the power of the Holy Spirit would come upon them and that their souls would tremble and shake until they come to Jesus. Help others to come become part of our church. Follow Jesus in baptism. Follow Him into ministry. Fully abandon their lives for His name and His sake. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song. And as we sing, I'm going to ask you to step out from where you are. Friends, we'll move for you. Come down one of these aisles and meet one of our staff members here. And we will help you meet the Lord Jesus or minister to your spiritual need. Would you come? Let me finish my prayer. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Gather for you everything you desire in this hour for your name. By the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.